You are listening to the Fresh Take Network. out there thank you for joining me for another wonderful episode my name is kelsey and this is a brand new episode of f 101 So for those of you who are brand new to the F1 world and for those veterans who have been around for a while, it is one of the most exciting times of the season. That is right. We are coming literally up to car reveal season. This starts off our hot topics. I love this season. I'm very excited to see what these cars look like. We're starting off with a team that you wouldn't expect to be first when it comes to showing off their brand new vehicle, brand new technical abilities and all that kind of fun stuff they're generally middle of the pack if not the very last team to show everybody what they've got but uh they're reaching the budget cap they've got two new sponsors they're coming out of the gate hot uh we're talking about haas generally not one of those teams that it's very first before red bull before ferrari or or before mercedes but like i said two new sponsors 138 million dollars to spend Gunter Steiner's got to be smiling from ear to ear. And yeah, they're, they've beaten everybody to the punch. And it's not in February like most people would think. They are going very, very early. I believe they're making a statement that with this brand new sponsorship and the brand new money that they have, that they will be a force to reckon with. What's the date you're wondering? Well, it is none other than January 31st, 9 a.m. Eastern time. These guys are coming out of the gates three days before Red Bull, before Mercedes, before everybody else. I'm very, very, very excited to see what these guys can do. Things that you can expect to see uh, on the live stream that they've got going on tomorrow morning, they're going to have a brand new paint job. They have said so as much in different articles and different interviews. They are sticking with the red, white, and blue color scheme because they are technically an American Formula One team. Uh, they've got two new sponsors. They are American sponsors. And what you can definitely expect to see is a much updated version. And as far away from the red, white, and blue color system that they had with the Russian sponsorship, I'm expecting, I mean, I don't know why, but I'm expecting some kind of stars on there. Uh, I'm expecting a lot of stripes, red, white, and blue stripes, kind of like the American flag going across that car. I'm just very excited to see they're introducing a new driver to some people, a recurring driver to some older veterans of the viewership and to F1 in general, Nico Hulkenberg. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. I, I cannot wait. I will be up early for it. Uh, if you're Alberta time like I am, 9 a.m. Eastern time, I do believe is 7 a.m. our time, so not too, too early. You can definitely get it in before you go to work, but definitely something exciting to watch tomorrow morning. 
This just in today, following our hot topics and sponsorship, uh, Alfa Romeo got a brand new sponsorship. The sponsorship will run from 2023 to 2026 when Audi comes in. Well, and you're wondering, well, what is this sponsorship? Um, it's it's following a trend of either you love it or you hate it. Uh, this sponsorship is bringing in $100 million over three years. So it's it's a substantial sponsorship, but it's not anything earth-shattering in the world of Formula One. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know other how to say it. It's another cryptocurrency sponsorship. Uh, it's called Stake. Uh, what these guys essentially do is they are a online cryptocurrency gambling affiliate. They set up online casinos. Um, we're not just talking like, we're talking like poker games. We're talking about roulette, all that kind of stuff. But you can gamble specifically with cryptocurrency. This may seem all well and dandy, but uh, these guys, I mean, they don't exactly have the best track record. One of the founding uh, members of Stake is suing the other founder for $400 million. Uh, we're talking about jail time for some of the employees for embezzlement, uh, legal loopholes. They, like, they're, they're loaded with the Premier Football League, UFC, uh, Drake's got some money in there, I mean, which seems all fine and dandy. Uh, they're technically in the Caribbean, but they're technically not. They are in Australia as well, but they found a loophole where they can do online casino gambling in Australia. So it sounds confusing, and it is. Uh, it sounds shady to me, but hey, money's money, I guess. $100 million for Alfa Romeo for a crypto gambling website. Why not? It's Formula One. Let's just, no pun intended, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. But let's see, let's see how long this sponsorship lasts. It's on a trend. Either you, the Formula One teams either love cryptocurrency sponsorships or they absolutely hate it or they're dumping it. It's one of the two. There doesn't seem to be much of a gray area in that. But hey, $100 million extra over three years, just in time for Audi to come in. Uh, Alfa Romeo, they're, it seems like they're kind of getting away from the major sponsorship a little bit at a time where maybe the logo won't be so big. Maybe they're just adding more sponsorship so they can slowly shrink that logo down to where everyone's contract expires at the exact same time. Audi can come in with a fresh set of eyes going, Hey, we like you guys. We don't like you guys, you know, makes it that much easier. Or it's just a massive cluster just a massive cluster of mess just for sponsorship and money just to keep them afloat for the next three years. Who knows? I don't know. I can't find any information. I'm sure some of the experts have absolutely no idea what's going on, but let's hope stake.com sticks around for a while that uh, they can actually give the full 100 million to Alfa Romeo because God knows they need the money for new improvement and just, uh, you know, stay afloat for the next three years. Let us continue with the fourth team in our series of the history of F1. This is one of the most important teams, in my opinion, in Formula One history. They may not have been around since the very, very beginning, but their impact has definitely been felt throughout the generations. They were the first for a lot of innovations. Uh, it was a team that a lot of people and a lot of other teams set benchmarks to, especially in the mid-80s and early 90s. A major fall-off going into the 2000s uh we're gonna get right into it we're talking about williams racing base in the uk their team principal 
uh, James Voles. Now, he has just come over from Mercedes. He used to be the team strategist. Uh, he was there the entire time that helped Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton win seven constructors, you know, eight or seven drivers' championships, so on and so forth. This man knows the ins and outs of Formula One like you have absolutely no idea. He's worked his way up in the business itself, not just with Mercedes, but several teams throughout the years. Definite positive addition to Williams. Uh, I think he's definitely going to help them in the next couple of years really nail down what Take, a, take some of the guesswork out of it. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. So he's the team principal. Power unit is Mercedes. Drivers are Alex Albon. And for the first time since 1995, we now officially have an American driver, Logan Sargent. Uh, he had to jump through some hoops with the Indy car, with super license points. He is finally in Formula One, which is fantastic. How will he do? I think... Putting him in a Williams car was the smartest decision that his agent had for him. Uh, he wasn't exactly lighting up Formula 2 or Formula 3 when he was there. He is a definite work in progress. Um, I think, personally, he is... I don't want to call him a cash cow for the U.S. market, but I'm going to call him a cash cow for the U.S. market. I think the only reason why anybody's even interested in him is because the popularity of Formula One in the U.S. market and in North America in general has just exploded so quickly and has infused so much interest and cash into the business that, to a certain extent, Formula One and the teams were scrambling to just get a U.S. driver on the grid. Logan Sargent fit that bill. He's very camera-friendly. Everybody seems to love him in the media, and everybody he's driven against doesn't really have anything bad to say about him except that i mean his driving record is not exactly spectacular but hopefully he will fit in quite nicely with a brand new team principal i mean you can't be you can't go wrong with a mercedes engine with a mercedes strategist um yeah i mean rumors going with mercedes or with williams is that Susie wolf total wolf's wife who has also have been in the moto industry for i mean years and decades it their major rumors are that Susie Wolf will become the new CEO of Williams. Now, normally I don't put much weight in these kind of rumors, but Total Wolf is as well. He is also uh, one of the major uh, investors in Williams. He does own a part of that racing team. So Williams is unofficially, officially the sister team of Mercedes, which wa which is why. I'm putting a little bit more weight into this rumor than I normally would. It just makes sense. You've got ex-Mercedes uh, mechanics and now strategists at Williams. You've got the CEO and team principal of Mercedes who owns a part of Williams. And now it would just make sense that your CEO would be an ex-Mercedes employee just officially to call it the sister team of Mercedes. I do think this is going to happen in the next couple of years if not by the end of the season. And I think this would be, again, one of the better moves that, that Williams has ever done. Um, I do believe that it will propel them back into the midfield, if not higher, in the next couple of years where they used to be back in the 80s and early 90s. But team founder of Williams, uh, Sir Frank Williams. It's not very often that you hear a founder with the name Sir in front of him. That's how important he was in the UK, in motorsport, and definitely for Formula One itself. First entry was in 1978. Uh, grand total of pole positions is 128. Fastest laps, 133. 
uh, race starts, 792 races. Are, they've been in 100 and, <laughs> excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, races entered, 792. Races started, 787. Again, for a team that's from the 1978, from the 1970s, that's still a spectacular record. It's, I mean, you're definitely finishing more races than you start, which is fantastic. That's the kind of record you want to see in a championship style team. Constructors Championships 9, Drivers Championships 7, Race Wins 114. That's how dominant these guys were that over the years they've only actually won 114 races and it still equaled 9 Constructors and 7 Drivers Championships. That's that's how innovative these guys were. Total points 3,592. So they're just by that math alone, which is not difficult math, they're always in the top five. They were always in the top five. They didn't have to win everything, but they were there so constantly that they would just win everything that was around them. It was it was one of the spectacular parts of Williams back in the day. Uh, first team points was in 1978. They appeared. They started in 1978, and that was the South African Grand Prix. Uh, 1979, now this is where... Williams started to separate themselves from the rest of the pack in the early 80s. They developed the very first ground effects, and they also won that same year with the revolutionary ground effects. Now, when I say ground effects, people are like, I don't really know what that means. So when you look at the car itself, you see the car, and then you see the side pods. That's the big bubbly parts on the side. Or if you're a Mercedes, no side pods at all. And then the ground effects you see are parts of the skirts that go around the edge of the car. So if you've ever watched, you know, let's let's use the uh, the okay analogy of if you've ever seen Fast and the Furious, those body kits, that's what's called ground effects. That's what you add to the car to push the air onto the car to push it down on the ground so you've got better traction, you've got better speed, and just an overall better consistent drive for that vehicle and for the driver. Follow that up in the 1980, like 1980, they won their very first Constructors Championship, which, I mean, they've been in there for two years and they win the Constructors. And not only did they win it, they also absolutely destroyed the field. They won the Constructors Championship. They had twice as many points as the second place team. So it's not like, oh, we've won enough races to win the Constructors. They won enough races to absolutely humiliate the rest of the team. Now, the, the Sorry, the rest of the grid. Now, back in the 1980s, they didn't have as many races as they do now. Nowhere near the 23 that we're going to see in 2023. You're talking more along the lines of 10 to 15 races max. So if you have that many points at the end of the Constructor Series, and you've only got you know a grand total of 114 wins throughout your history from 1978, that means you are placing on the podium every single race you're not necessarily winning but you're on the podium either second or third or even better if you're williams you've got a driver second and third every single race if not three quarters of the race and you were just absolutely demolishing embarrassing everybody else and that that consistently that consistency carried on to 1982 they won their very first driver's championship but here's the thing they only won one race in the entire circuit of 1982, they won one race, yet they were able to win the Drivers' Championship. 
again, that means you're placing second, third, almost if not every single race the entire season. And the consistency that that takes and the ingenuity and the teamwork is unrivaled even until this day. Even when you think about Mercedes and the seven championships in a row they've won, it's just the same person that won every single race, which is why, or almost every single race, which is why Lewis Hamilton was able to do that. But to have the teamwork where your driver wins the championship and you've only actually won one race, that's just next level teamwork, cooperation, and the understanding of what you need to do. Let's go to 1983. We're going to win another world championship. Not only that, in 19, we're going to skip a few years, 1987, 1986. We're going to win more world championships. And not only that, these guys are innovating at the same time. 1985, they win the world championship. Not only that, they also introduced the very first carbon fiber F1 body, the FW10. And no one had ever, no one had ever thought that carbon fiber would be able to withstand the type of speed and the type of heat from the brakes and the cornering and the collisions. And they just thought it was too lightweight for it to withstand everything that is Formula One, even in the 1980s. This is when you're starting to get into the, you know, more advanced engines. You're pulling a lot more horsepower. You're going faster. You're pulling more Gs. This is when the technological innovation came around where they're really pushing these cars to the limit. And then William comes along with, it's like, hey, you know what? We got ground effects on it. It worked. Let's put carbon fiber on it. Let's just push the envelope that far where no one else is willing to go. Let's do that. Let's win a championship with the very first carbon fiber composite chassis. Let's do it. Why not? And they did it. And they did it so successfully that after that year, other teams, multiple teams on the grid started to copy not just some of the design of the Williams car, but they also almost totally incorporated carbon fiber into the entire car at that point. Now, at that same time, they're innovating and winning so much that 1983, all of a sudden, Honda comes into the picture for the first time in Formula One. And Williams goes, you know what? We're going to team up with Honda right now. They were with the Ford Power Unit supplier before, but Honda's always been on that cusp of innovation. They're always on the cutting edge, whether it's with Formula One racing, whether it's with their supercar division, or whether it's with the car that you have at home, Honda is always on that edge of perfection, essentially, is what it is. So great partnership. They win a couple of championships with Honda. 1988 comes around, and you know what? Williams decides, Honda, you're great, uh, but Honda decides to go to Lotus instead. Their contract is up. Honda wants something new. Honda literally goes out and buys the majority of the Lotus F1 team. Williams is looking around going, okay, what are we going to do now? Now they team up with Renault. Now, Renault is generally not known for their consistency, at least later in the uh, 90s, early 2000s, but definitely not the case. 1992, they win the Drivers' and the Constructors' Championship yet again. Unfortunately for them, this is where they've got a ton of winning, but they're also starting to see that little bit of performance loss that, Unfortunately, some of the new generation of race fans know Williams to be. 1992 driver, uh, Nigel Manson, fantastic driver, was with the team for a few seasons. He decides to go to IndyCar. Uh, he had won the first five races of the season, easily won the constructors or the Drivers' Championship, and with those five wins in the very first part of the season, wins the Constructors'. 1993 comes along, they win the Drivers' again, 
but now their head driver, Alan Prost, who had won again the majority of the races and had the majority of the points, also decides to retire. This is where, I mean, the plus and minuses are starting to even out a little bit more than just the winning. 1994, they win the Constructors' Championship. Unfortunately for them, it was it was a horrible year for Formula One and for Williams, especially because the legendary driver, Ayrton Senna, was also killed in Imola. He was a Williams driver at the time, but he was he took the team so far ahead that they won the Constructors. 1996, they won the Constructors again. 97, they won the Drivers and the Constructors, but this time Renault withdraws as a power, power unit provider. Again, so now... Okay, what are we going to do at the end of that? They kind of, you know, putzed along. They didn't do, they didn't do as well. They started to become the middle of the pack kind of team once Renault lost. In the early 2000s, 2000 itself, a new power unit partner they signed with BMW. It was for a five-year deal. Now, in the history of BMW and the rest of the teams, you expect that you sign with BMW and you're absolutely going to kill it. You're going to start winning again. You're going to be at the top of the roost like you were in the early 90s and in the late 80s. Unfortunately for them, uh, you go three seasons into the new partnership with BMW. The best that Williams can do now is they're second in the constructors behind a absolutely dominant Ferrari, which got first that season. So it's not like they weren't trying. It's just that Ferrari was hitting on all cylinders Michael Schumacher, the legendary pace, the car was um, more innovative than Williams at that time. The innovation from Williams kind of, I don't want to call it stagnated, but the rest of the grid was also coming up with the same ideas as Williams had had at the same time. So great ideas, still fantastic evolution of the car and innovation. It's just that other teams were starting to catch up to that. So it definitely leveled out the field. 2004, the best they could do with fourth in the constructors. Then 2005, fifth in the constructors. 2006, eighth in the constructors. Worst year in up to that point in Williams history. Nine, uh, 2006, they got eighth in the constructors, which, I mean, it's you're near the bottom. There's only 10 teams. But what really, what really didn't help them at all, and which was a sign of things to come, is they had 20 dnfs did not finishes between the two cars they had 20 dnfs that's i mean that's absolutely atrocious and of course you got to put in crashes and then things you really can't control whether it's another car hitting you whether the weather conditions make it undrivable but it's too late for you to notice um power unit failures all that kind of stuff a lot of stuff is out of their control but still, 20 DNFs in one season is absolutely just atrocious. 2007, 2008, they got eighth in the constructors. You can start to see the slow um, dismantlement of the mindset of Williams. Uh, it wasn't the, the powerhouse that it used to be. It kind of seemed like they lost faith in themselves. There were some years where some of these cars they came up with would what would normally be revolutionary and what would be mind-blowing turned out to be less than spectacular. The ideas that they were coming up with would be fantastic on paper, but in the wind tunnels or actually on the racetrack, it was, it was absolutely just not the thing they needed to do. In 2009, they 
develop the double diffuser, this should give them more power. This should give them more straight line speed. This should tremendously help them keep up with Mercedes and Ferrari. By 2011, they were last in the constructors. They only scored five points. And it's not because the drivers didn't help. The drivers didn't really like themselves or like each other. But it was just inconsistency in the development of the car. They seem to be going backwards as well as just the consistency of the power unit, the consistency of just the parts in general just seem to be, they. It's, you know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and it's not really good for the, you know, two or three times in a row that you go. So you stop going to that restaurant. It seemed like Williams, just their suppliers were just horrible for five years in a row and they kept going back no matter what. They didn't really have an option and they just, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse for them. 2012, they finally, they finally record their first Grand Prix victory. First one since 2004. That's at the Spanish Grand Prix. They switch again to Renault for the power unit providers. Generally, again, this is around about the time where they're having issues with Red Bull and McLaren. It didn't really, you know, it didn't really help Williams at all. 2013, ninth overall in the constructors. They only hit the top 10 twice. Uh, they switched from Renault to Mercedes in 2014 for power unit providers. This time they got third in the constructor series. So now it's starting to look up again. It seems to it seems to be that the more times you change power unit providers, it seems in the history of Formula One, you do really, really bad for so long. And then you start to go on an uptick. And it's with your main providers. It's with Ferrari or if it's with Mercedes. That's or BMW in the early 80s, early 90s. That's when you seem to go on that upswing. It seems to be as soon as you switch to anybody like Ford or Renault or Lotus or even Honda back in the day, you're just you're not you're not succeeding. Um, it's kind of written at the wall on this point that if you go to any of those three providers, that you're just you're going to have some horrible horrible years. It starts to look up for Williams 2014. Like I said, third place overall, 2015, third overall, 2016, fifth overall, 2017. They're fifth in the constructors. Now you start to see that consistency again. Uh, 85 points in 2017. The drivers have, they've got some really experienced drivers. They've got the power unit sorted out. Mercedes has always been solid for every single constructor that they provided for. It's, it's that gold standard. It's that go-to. So they don't have to worry about that. The evolution of the car has gotten more consistent. They're not so much looking outside the box. They're not so much stretching the envelope as they're looking at the rest of the teams that are winning and they're tweaking it just a little bit to make it themselves, which will be fine for a bit, but it's not a sustainable business plan, as you'll see a little bit later on. Directors Championship. So now comes 2018, 2019, and it is one of the more embarrassing seasons that these guys have had up to date one point scored per season they've come dead last the rest of the field has just seemed to have forgotten about williams they innovation plans have just skyrocketed at this point there is no budget uh for each team so mercedes is spending like north of like 400 million dollars on development williams doesn't have that kind of investment they are at the bottom end of that kind of investment scale they definitely rely more on sponsorships at this point and their sponsorship you know the money they're bringing it in to keep the team afloat but it's not anything 
substantial enough to make them, you know, number one in the pack or to even keep up with the mid-grid teams. 2020 rolls around. This by far is the worst season that they have had to date. 2020, absolutely zero points scored in the first time ever, ever in the history of Williams, as well as in 2020, they no longer, the family themselves and the sponsorship could no longer bear the financial burden, and they are eventually sold to a private investments firm in the UK called Dorton Capital. It's it's something that they didn't want to do. They kept the name Williams just as like a tribute to what Sir Williams had did in the past and for the contribution to Formula One, but they were in name, in name only. They have driven the team financially into the ground with poor performances, uh, bad investment in the car themselves, and it, this was the only way that Williams is going to stay in Formula One was for them to sell the team. It made international sporting news. It was definitely the headline news in the UK and in Europe itself because it was... It was one of those teams that you didn't think would ever be sold, that it would just get passed down from father to daughter to, you know, to their kids, to their kids, to their kids. And it was going to be a legacy team. But at this point, it was the only way to save this legacy was to make it a non-family team anymore. And I don't want to say the heart and soul was not in Williams anymore, but it was it was definitely a shell of itself. The family didn't have nearly as much input as most people had thought. They were essentially just a name on the car by the time the investment group had come in. Uh, it was unfortunate to see, but at least they got to stick around and stay in Formula One. Uh, 2021, they got 18th, or they got, sorry, they got 8th in the Constructor Series, uh, which is great. Up two spots, they scored some points. George Russell, very first podium. This is definitely the the shining moment up until George Russell signed with Mercedes. He, like I said before, he was doing well enough that Williams, at some point, they had to know that they weren't going to keep him, that Mercedes was going to call him along and, and scoop him up. And they did, you know, a, a season or two later. Unfortunately, 2021, for, for off-track reasons, was the worst season for Williams where uh, Sir Frank Williams had died in 2021. And that kind of... They kind of put a pin in, in what the Williams legacy may have been. They've been last for a couple of seasons. Uh, their premier driver was going to leave. Um, it, they, there wasn't a whole lot left to celebrate. And then, you know, the, the founder, the person who made all of this possible happen to, he just, he passed away. So it, uh, it was kind of a, a sad tribute to what Williams had become. Skipping forward to 2022, they were 10th overall. They only scored eight points. They were dead last in the grid. They weren't... The team itself should have done a lot more to help themselves, in my opinion. And I say this, obviously not as a Formula One driver and someone who's not in charge of a you know billion-dollar corporation for a, a Formula One team, but... There were some decisions looking back now, hindsight being 2020, that they definitely could have done or maybe have eaten a contract of a driver that would have definitely helped them to pick up new blood to help them get new sponsorships. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of Nicholas Latifi. Like he was one of those drivers for Williams that he was there because his family has money. 
He was good in Formula 3. He was okay, if not good, in Formula 2. He just he never found his niche in Formula 1, and unfortunately for Williams, they bared the burden of that. All of his crashes, all of his spin-outs, all of him just costing them money time and time and time again. I think, like I said, hindsight being 2020 and what it was, I think they should have bought out his contract and got rid of Nicholas Latifi and brought in somebody a lot sooner. Maybe, you know, maybe they would have brought back Nico Hulkenberg and helped Williams out with the experience. And this, I mean, sponsorship money withstanding and just the experience of him winning races and being, being as hard as he is to pass and to race against would have helped Williams substantially where I think they wouldn't have been in as much financial trouble and they wouldn't be essentially as big of a joke in the grid as they are now because that's kind of what they are. Williams at this point is just those back markers on the track. Um, they're barely better. They're barely, barely hanging on. Everybody's better than them, including Haas, even when they had Mazaspin, uh, even when they were having all of their issues with their drivers. And... Mick Schumacher crashing like that was the only way that Williams was able to pass anybody's if they had crashed out so the future for Williams I think it can be either really really good or really really bad in the next couple of years if the investment group holds firm and they have faith in the team in the development uh, I mean like they said they brought in the new team principal if Susie Wolf comes in as the new CEO of the racing team itself. That will definitely help the prospects for the team if they decide to stick around. With all of the talk and conversation of Andretti and Cadillac coming in, I think if the FIA doesn't allow them to add an 11th team, I think at some point, say 2024, 2025 at the absolute latest, that another corporation will come along to buy Williams and then Williams will cease to exist. Essentially, they're going to do what Audi's doing to Alfa Romeo. They're just going to, hey, in a year or two, we're going to, when everyone's contract is up, when the sponsorship prices are done, like everybody's paid out, that they're just going to come along and they're going to scoop up Williams and one of the most innovative and one of the most important teams in Formula One, I do solemnly believe with a heavy heart will not be around come 2025 at the absolute latest but i'm hope i'm wrong i hope they develop a brand new car for this coming up 2023 season that will really show the type of investment and type of heart that this team has uh speaking of the speaking of the car itself we're going to go back to the names like we always do and uh let you guys know the williams car is called the fw44 now Again, we're going to go through the letters and we're going to go through the numbers on what those actually mean. The FW, fittingly, the FW will always stand for Frank Williams. That is the, the creator of the team itself. Now, the number behind it, the 44, does stand for the number of chassis. But unlike any other team where it's a new chassis every season, what Williams ended up doing was every time they made an improvement to the chassis, they would change the letter and depending on if they had major upgrades throughout the season, they would add letters to it. So, for example, uh, we're talking 2022, they were known as the FW43B. So what they had done later on in the season is that, or yeah, later on in the season, they had added some major upgrades to the car. So no longer was it the original FW43, 
it was now the FW43B. So as 23 as 2023 comes in, it will be known as the 44. Now, any major or even it doesn't even have to be major part upgrade. We're, we're talking like they'll call it a different name for a chassis if the color scheme changes drastically. That's how dedicated and to the numbers that these guys are. So if they come out with a brand new paint scheme halfway through the season, all of a sudden it's going to be now known as the 44B. They have to do major upgrades to it and then change the color again. It's going to be known as the 44C. These guys... Uh, every once in a while has been known to go all the way up to D or E just for major changes throughout the chassis. It is a little excessive, but it's also a very good way to keep track of what you're spending your money on, how you're spending it, and if it's actually helping. Um, and if which rendition of the chassis works better at the beginning compared to the end, it's really easy for them to compare numbers. Hey, we're going to take parts of A, B, and E, and we're going to put that car together, and we're going to come up with the, let's say, FW... 45 for next season so on and so forth but there you have it that is the history of the williams formula one team cheer for them they're definitely the underdog everybody loves a good underdog story they they have upcoming and spectacular drivers so they are definitely worth a look for the 2023 season coming up next the next team that we'll be covering in the history of f1 is the aston martin f1 team.